Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. It's a life awakening moment. You, you, you realize how big football is with that Rose Bowl experience. It's Hollywood. So you're in Hollywood and you're the star for that week. And so all the talk in the town is about you. And it's like you have to pinch yourself to see, is, is, is this really real, you know? And, um, but college athletics became showtime because now the games are worthy of taking time out of your schedule to plan to watch the games because the football was that good. The athletes were that good. Uh, so much so that uh, when I was a senior, I had a little extra money. And uh, I decided that I wanted to buy my mother uh, a color TV in the event that uh, I got a floor model. That's what, what the big thing was in the 70s. And um, so I bought her a floor model color TV because I wanted her to, you know, maybe one day watch me play in the Rose Bowl. Welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes, released regularly, will carry listeners through that season one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. If this is your first time listening, you may want to go back and start with episode one. This is episode 11, What Though the Odds. Charles Holder moved to Pasadena, California from snowy Massachusetts in 1885. Three years later, he founded the Valley Hunt Club, a private and elite society of wealthy residents that had relocated to the widening West Coast from the crowded metropolises of the East. In the winter of 1889, the club members celebrated their good fortune and good weather with the parade of flowered-covered horse-drawn carriages on the first day of the new decade. The festivities also included something called the Tourney of the Rings, in which mounted horsemen would ride full speed and try to bullseye their lances through rings of roses. The exhibition was entertaining, but it failed to gain the attention of the local newspaper. Eager for a celebration that would attract a spotlight, the club's newly formed Tournament of Roses Association decided to host a college football game. When the association's president proposed this idea to Fielding Yost, the head football coach of Michigan, he immediately accepted. 
Yost had spent the previous season coaching football at Stanford, but was forced to resign after a group of Western schools abruptly passed a rule saying all teams had to be coached by a graduate. Yost thought this sudden policy change was targeted at him and motivated by the other school's jealousy of his success. He wanted revenge, the kind that could only be won on the gridiron against a West Coast school. In 1902, Yost and his Wolverines routed Stanford 49 to nothing in the first ever postseason college football game. The lopsided score ensured it would also be the last one for 13 years. Instead, the parade planners replaced football with chariot racing before finally bringing the football game back for good in 1916. In the next decade, a massive new stadium was built and lent its name to the then unnamed annual winter showcase that is now known by all as the Rose Bowl. It's unlikely that any of the actors in the creation of college football's first bowl game could have foreseen that their exhibition would start one of the sport's most wonderful, unique, and frustrating traditions. But for every orange, sugar, or cotton bowl, there was at least one cigar, oyster, or salad bowl that littered the carnival-colored graveyard of failed attempts at postseason football. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, some college football coaches and administrators pushed back against the growing glut of bowls. They argued that it needlessly extended the season, or that they were little more than a way for the corporate sponsors to make money. In 1949, a report from the Bowl Problem Committee revealed that some bowl games shared as little as 40% of their profits with the participating schools. The problem grew so large that in 1976, NCAA member schools met in St. Louis to vote on diluting the bowl system in favor of a postseason playoff that would determine a single champion. Although some coaches opposed this possibility, the loudest dissent came, unsurprisingly, from the bowl game officials themselves. These community leaders were used to being treated like kings every November when they'd arrive on campus, dangling a possible bowl invite to teams looking for exposure and a chance at on-field glory. In 1980, the Sugar Bowl representative arrived in Tallahassee before Florida State's game against Virginia Tech and must have felt like a conquering hero. Wine, cheese, and fruit awaited in his hotel room, complete with garnet and gold sheets. As he was treated to dinner by some of the city's finest dignitaries, a hotel maid left mints, a personalized message, and a miniature bottle of brandy on his pillow to wish him sweet Seminole dreams. This royal treatment was made possible not by the university, but by the football team's well-heeled boosters. But not all bowl matchmaking was quid pro quo. A complicated tangle of bowl tie-ins and conference rules created a dizzying picture of the bowl game pairings that lasted right up until the bids were handed out. This caused more than a little tension among the major bowls and their committees, as they raced each other to land the most attractive game and secure those teams with fan bases eager to gobble up tickets. An NCAA rule prohibited any discussion between bowl games and colleges until the third Saturday of November at 6 p.m., or at the conclusion of the team's game, whichever came first. However, that rule had never been enforced, and although the bowl lineup was not to be made official until the prescribed time, many postseason games had already secured their matchups through gentlemen's agreements and contingency plans leading up to the deadline, not willing to be scooped by their rival bowl committees. In 1980, as the third Sunday in November approached, 12 teams had one or fewer losses, and nobody had a clue what the bowl lineup would be. Although some bowls had agreements in place to host conference champions, at-large spots in the orange, sugar, cotton, and all the lower-tiered bowls still remained. Like a complicated mating ritual, 
Bowl committees would make overtures to the desired teams to determine their interest, sometimes granted in the form of a player's vote. Then, after a courtship between the bowl representatives, boosters, and athletic departments, tentative plans were put in place for a partnership, while all watched to see if the players could uphold their end of the bargain on the field. On bid day, it was not uncommon for a bowl game to have representatives at multiple stadiums, frantically phoning each other and the selection committee on payphones to ensure that they would be standing in the correct locker room with open arms when their coveted team arrived. Although the postseason produced a financial windfall for the participating teams, including $18 million after the 1979 season, the bowl games, first designed to simply draw tourists to warm weather destinations, had grown into an inelegant and imprecise stand-in for an actual system to determine a champion. Starting in 1969, the panel of Associated Press sports writers that voted to crown a national champion moved the season's final poll to after the bowl games were played. And when that 1976 college football playoff vote mentioned earlier failed to pass, the bowl games were the best the sport had to offer to name its champion. It was no guarantee that the current system would produce a satisfying matchup to feed the fans' desire for a true champion. Only five times had the bowl games paired the number one and two ranked teams in the country, and two of those were in the Rose Bowl, when the Pac-10 and Big Ten champions just happened to occupy those spots. By November of 1980, everybody was chasing top-ranked Georgia. Hot on its heels were Alabama and Notre Dame, both being courted by the Sugar Bowl for a potential meeting with the Bulldogs. But there was much more than a bowl game on the line when the two teams met in Birmingham. Head coaches Bear Bryan and Dan Devine may have been the two winningest active coaches in college football in 1980, but both men found themselves filling the role of grief counselor ahead of their Week 11 matchup. Alabama and Notre Dame had entered the month of November undefeated, but both were stung by shocking upsets that cost them their perfect records and the top ranking. First, the Crimson Tide's 28-game winning streak was snapped in a 6-3 loss against Mississippi State the Bulldogs' first win over Alabama since the 1950s. The very next week, Notre Dame, who had taken over the top spot in the polls from the Tide, needed a late field goal to salvage a 3-3 tie against Georgia Tech, a three-touchdown underdog with a 1-8 record coming into the game. What had been touted as a game of the century just two weeks earlier was now considered an elimination game in the national title hunt. Getting their teams to focus on the opportunity that lay ahead and not the ones already missed would be as important as any X's and O's that Devine and Bryant might devise. If only they could borrow some of the fans' energy, Bama might be favored by a hundred. Tuscaloosa and the entire Yellowhammer State had been looking forward to Notre Dame's visit for months, and likely longer than that. For the first time ever, the Alabama campus bookstore sold merchandise with another team's name on it, an honor not even afforded bitter rival Auburn. Students could pick up green derbies that said, Damn Notre Dame, or t-shirts printed with shamrocks and the invocation, Hail Mary, full of grace, Notre Dame's in second place. And in this, in election year, one Tide backer was overheard saying, I'd vote for Iran before I'd vote for Notre Dame. There was, of course, the usual contempt that the SEC fans reserved for any Northern school, but the majority of vitriol directed at the Irish went back to the last night of 1973, and the first meeting of two of college football's most famous teams. And next we head for Sugar Bowl Stadium for the 40th anniversary football classic, matching number three ranked Notre Dame and number one ranked Alabama. 
That collision between the Fighting Irish and the Crimson Tide was inevitable. The two Goliaths of the sport had been orbiting each other for decades as each program grew in prestige and staked its claim to the title of best in the land. But their Cold War started to heat up in 1966. That year, Alabama was the defending champion and finished the season as the only unbeaten and untied team. It crushed its opponents by an average of three touchdowns and allowed just four points per game. So good was the Tide that when asked how it felt to be the best football team on the planet after winning the first Super Bowl, legendary Packers coach Vince Lombardi said, I don't know, we haven't played Alabama yet. But when the season's final poll votes were counted, it was Notre Dame that was awarded the national championship. The Irish in 1966, coached by Era Parsegan, were a powerhouse in their own right, outscoring three top 10 teams on their schedule by a combined 101 points. But none of those wins would be as memorable as a 10-10 tie in November against second-ranked Michigan State in East Lansing. That matchup between the top two ranked teams in the country was called the Game of the Century and had drawn so much attention that ABC broke its own broadcasting rules to ensure a majority of Americans could watch it live and in color. The Irish had the ball late in the fourth quarter, with the score deadlocked at 10. Rather than risk a turnover, Parsegan told his team to run the ball and bleed the rest of the clock. The game ended in a 10-10 tie, but Notre Dame retained its number one ranking, even if their coach's reputation may have taken a hit. The season's final poll gave the Irish the national title, while Alabama sat at third behind Michigan State. Some felt that the Tide snub was punishment for still featuring a segregated football squad and for the many ugly civil rights clashes that were taking place in Alabama around that time. Along with being seen as an undeserving champion, Notre Dame was a hated embodiment of the northern snobbery that so irked Alabamians. After the 1972 season, the temperature was turned up even hotter. Parsegan criticized Bear Bryant and his team for electing to face Texas in the Cotton Bowl instead of top-ranked and undefeated Nebraska in Miami. So, if you're keeping track, not only did Notre Dame rob Alabama of a title in 1966, but its coach, who was too scared to go for the win against Michigan State, dared to question the integrity of the great Bear Bryant? This meant war. In 1973, the two schools once again found themselves at the top of the polls and on each other's minds. Number one, Alabama sent a clear message when its head coach told newspapers that his team had voted to play in the Sugar Bowl and had wanted to play undefeated and third-ranked Notre Dame. Era Parsegan wasted little time responding that his team wouldn't back down from a challenge. And just like that, the sport's two most famous programs and its two best coaches were set to meet for the first time in a New Year's Eve battle in New Orleans for the national championship. So important was this game that a special inquiry was placed from the Sugar Bowl to the NCAA Rules Committee to determine if overtime rules could be adopted just in case the teams played to a tie. Impossibly, the game lived up to the hype. The Irish were seven-point underdogs, but came from behind three separate times and clung to a one-point lead late in the contest. Backed up near his own goal line and expected to play it safe, Parsegan fooled everybody and called for a daring pass play to secure the victory. The following season, Alabama was again undefeated and ranked second after the regular season. Once more, the Tide squared off against an underdog Notre Dame with the national title on the line. And once more, Era and the Irish upset the Bear in Alabama and cost them a championship. 
1976, the Crimson Tide got a third crack at Notre Dame when it traveled to South Bend for a regular season tilt with the Irish. In what was becoming a frustrating but familiar refrain in Tuscaloosa, Notre Dame again beat Alabama. That brief but explosive history set the stage for the 1980 matchup between the two former number ones in Birmingham on November 15th. The game not only held national title implications, Alabama was ranked 5th and Notre Dame 6th with bowl bids to be finalized the following day, but also served as a proving ground for Bear Bryant, a man who had long ago outgrown nearly every measuring stick that existed. The legendary coach admitted as much in the week leading up to the game, telling reporters that he didn't want to be buried with a plaque that said, here lies the guy that couldn't beat Notre Dame. Dan Devine's legacy was also a popular topic. Just 24 hours before kickoff, the Chicago Tribune published a story that said the Notre Dame coach, who had earlier revealed that the 1980 season would be his last, spent the week pleading for another year and would announce his return for the 1981 season after the Alabama game. Devine was so upset that he called a press conference after the team landed in Birmingham to issue an angry denial of the rumor. The Tide was a seven-point favorite, despite there being questions about who would be under center for Alabama. Regular starter Don Jacobs injured his ankle the week before against LSU, and the backup quarterback sprained his hand. That left true freshman Walter Lewis as the potential signal caller for the game against the Irish. More than 78,000 fans packed Legion Field in Birmingham, most of them hoping that Bear Bryant could finally vanquish Notre Dame and keep alive hopes for a third straight national championship. Alabama received the opening kickoff and sent Jacobs onto the field. On the very first play from scrimmage, the Irish defense set the tone for what would be a bruising and defensive affair. In the locker room after the game, Major Ogilvie said of that first tackle, I don't know if one play can set the tempo, but that first play showed me that Notre Dame was really ready to play football. The first quarter ended with neither team finding much success moving the ball, but a bizarre exchange in the second quarter provided the game's first scoring chance. With Alabama backed up deep in its own territory and facing a third and short, Quarterback Don Jacobs collided with his tailback, and the ball fell to the damp AstroTurf, where it was gathered by Notre Dame's John Hankard. The stingy tie defense grudgingly allowed the Irish to advance to the one-yard line, where the visitors looked to score the game's first points. Part of the deep man out of the yard. Fumble! Alabama's claiming it. Alabama man comes out with it. Alabama's got the football. Pete Williams, the referee, pointing upfield, and Warren Riles is carrying the ball, and Notre Dame wastes a glorious opportunity to score. Alabama had dodged a bullet, but with the offense back on the field, disaster again threatened to sink Jacobs in the tide. Second down and eight. Fumble! Notre Dame's got it back. Scott Zedick on the loose football. Alabama mishandles the ball. Keith, I cannot believe it. The quarterback, Don Jacobs, is riding and reading the defensive tackle. Watch his head. Watch his head. Look at the defensive tackle. Now when he turns back to try to find Jones, the halfback, the ball is laying on the ground for Notre Dame recovery. The Irish would not be denied again and capped the three-turnover flurry with a touchdown run by Phil Carter to put Notre Dame out in front 7-0. Neither team threatened again before halftime. The first half was a masterpiece for those that enjoyed defense. Alabama had earned just a single passing yard, and Notre Dame held the lead despite being outgained and averaging only two and a half yards per play. 
Prior to Saturday, Bear Bryant had squared off against Notre Dame three times, and all three times his team trailed at the half. The 1980 edition of the rivalry followed that script after 30 minutes, but Bryant, with Sugar Bowl hopes and his legacy on the line, would turn to an unknown freshman quarterback in a desperate attempt to rewrite history and ignite his offense. In 1880, exactly 100 years before the events of this season, a tiny community with a Baptist college in the Piedmont region of North Carolina was incorporated as the town of Wake Forest College. In 1909, it lost the word college from its name. In 1956, it lost the college itself. The events that culminated in what is still known in those parts as the removal began in the 1940s. Soldiers returning from World War II and taking advantage of the GI Bill had swelled Wake Forest's enrollment to its limit. The family of tobacco tycoon R.J. Reynolds sensed an opportunity and made an enormous offer of money and land to the school if it would relocate its entire campus 110 miles west to Winston-Salem, the state's second largest city. Some Baptist leaders in the state scoffed at the possibility, holding up a Bible in one hand and a pack of camel cigarettes in the other to represent the angel and demon tempting the college's leadership. Ultimately, the overtures proved too generous to resist. And just like that, Wake Forest, the town, woke up to find that the school that it had shared its name with since its founding was suddenly gone, up in smoke. When the university packed up for its relocation, its football tradition could have fit in a shoebox with room to spare. Gene Hooks, the school's athletics director, described Wake Forest's ambition as a good academic school with a small enrollment and a big-time sports program. Well, two out of three ain't bad. The Demon Deacons claimed just one bowl victory in their history and had never finished a season ranked higher than 19th. The program didn't post a single winning season in the 1960s, and despite capturing its only ACC conference crown in 1970 with a 6-5 record, the decade that followed brought more misery. In 1973, Dr. L.H. Hollingsworth, a former chaplain at the school, wrote a book titled God Goes to Football Games. One couldn't blame the Demon Deacon fans for thinking that if he did, he was sitting on the other team's sidelines. Following the 1977 season, Wake Forest could count just 13 wins in its previous six seasons. Eager for change, the school's athletic council voted unanimously to fire the football coach in January of 1978 and replace him with former player John Makovic. Jay Venuto was the team's sophomore quarterback when the hiring was announced. When I was getting recruited back in mid-70s, everybody ran the veer and wishbone and wanting a running quarterback, and I wasn't that type. So Wake Forest at the time was a little more rollout and ball control offense, and I just wasn't playing. I was relegated. I mean, I was fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, different periods of my career. And when John came in, he brought a passing attack uh, from Purdue. So Purdue was throwing the ball a lot, and he was offense coordinator at Purdue and got the head job at Wake. So as soon as he got the job, I just started looking at Purdue's offense, and I think uh, Mark Herman was the quarterback at the time. So I felt very comfortable doing that, just dropping back. And he was smart enough to move some of our best athletes to offensive line. My best friend to this day, Sid Kitson, was actually leading the ACC in receiving after the fourth game his junior year, and they moved him to offensive line. John put a nucleus together that fit what we could do. Makovic's debut season in Winston-Salem was a disappointing 1-10 campaign. But in 1979, 
Despite being named the country's second worst team in a preseason ranking by Penthouse Magazine, Wake Forest finished 8-4, the most wins in school history. Along the way, the team, once derided as Makovic's meatballs, knocked off the number 12, 13, and 14th ranked teams in the country and was led by Conference Player of the Year, Jay Venuto, who broke the ACC record for total offense in a single season. In 1980, Venuto returned for his senior year with high hopes, but the Cinderella Deeks, as they were known the year before, found that the glass slipper no longer fit. After collecting all of their wins in 1979 by 8 points or less, the 1980 version of Wake football was experiencing the opposite kind of luck. The team suffered through a midseason slump of three straight losses by three points or fewer, and entered its Week 11 matchup at South Carolina with a 4-5 and five record. This year, it was the Gamecocks, 7-2 and two and ranked 14th, that had designs on authoring their program's greatest season. They were two wins away from the most wins in school history, with two games to play. But the bigger story was senior running back George Rogers. The consensus All-American was the country's leading rusher, and had a staggering streak of 19 straight games with at least 100 yards. Two weeks earlier, he had been outshined in a duel with Georgia's Herschel Walker, but it had done nothing to slow the momentum of his Heisman campaign. While South Carolina fans would have to wait another few weeks to learn if their star tailback would win the sport's most prestigious award, they would waste no more time before immortalizing Rodgers and his number 38 jersey. At halftime on this November Saturday, before a raucous crowd of 55,000-plus Gamecock fans, Rodgers would become the only living player and just the third man in school history to have his jersey retired. While Carolina fans anticipated a once-in-a-lifetime coronation against the three-touchdown underdog Demon Deacons, Wake Forest senior quarterback Jay Venuto was planning his own unforgettable day. When I sat on the bench Friday before the game, at, in pregame, you know, as we're warming up the day before, I said, I'm going to have my best game I've ever had at this stadium because I love the stadium. And it was just, I just wanted to do it. I just said, I'm not going to play cautious. I'm just going to play hard, make my reads, throw the ball downfield, and um, just see what happens. And not play a little timid, a little you know, conservative. I only have two ball games left in my career, and I'm going to just air it out. If Venuto's premonition came true, he wouldn't be the only person accused of seeing the future. Carolina head coach Dan Carlin told reporters earlier in the week that he expected Wake Forest to rely on its passing attack, and his defense could be in for a long afternoon. If only he knew how right he would prove to be. It had been raining all weekend in Columbia, and by the time the Gamecocks kicked off under a gloomy sky at 1.30 in the afternoon on Saturday, the AstroTurf field at williams Bryce Stadium resembled a low country swamp. The soggy conditions only added to Venuto's confidence. I mean, it was such a downpour rain that the expectation is you don't have to be perfect because you can, people know it's the weather. So we just threw the ball, and the defense became conservative because they would sometimes let the receiver catch the ball and just ensure the tackle instead of fighting for the ball and slipping and falling down. There's one great thing about offense. If a receiver falls down, it might be an incomplete pass. If a defensive back falls down, it's a touchdown. So they were playing on their heels, and we were playing on the balls of our feet. The visiting quarterback opened the scoring with a two-yard touchdown toss after the Gamecocks suffered a high snap on their punt attempt, but Carolina would respond with two George Rogers rushing touchdowns to take a seven-point lead. The momentum swung back to Wake Forest, with Venuto 
who went 9 of 10 for 137 yards in the second quarter alone, connecting on another touchdown strike to tie the game at 14 as the teams trotted to the shelter of the locker rooms after a half of play. The deadlock score was an unfamiliar sight for Gamecock fans, who had watched their team crush its previous six home opponents by an average score of 42-8. to The good news for the sold-out and soaked crowd that included hopeful representatives from the Gator Bowl was that following the halftime ceremony to retire Rodgers number 38, South Carolina still had a half of football to get its offense on track and extend its 15-game home winning streak. The bad news was that Venuto and his Demon Deacons were just getting started. As teams from across the country came together to do battle on this college football Saturday, a far more desperate struggle was taking place on the other side of the world. It had been 378 days since a group of Iranian students had stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and taken 52 Americans hostage. The crisis had become a national preoccupation, to quote a Washington Post article, affecting every aspect of American life. College football was no exception. In fact, when the Algerian ambassador to Iran was allowed to meet with the hostages in the winter of 1980, they were photographed wearing college football jerseys. All season long, moments of silence were observed prior to the playing of the national anthem in stadiums across the country, while fans wore yellow ribbons in a show of support for those being held captive. While that injustice played out on the world stage, football fans in Los Angeles were showing their dissatisfaction with another perceived abuse of power. In recent weeks, Southern Cal supporters had been seen in the L.A. Coliseum wearing buttons that read, Free the Pac-5 Hostages. As detailed in Episode 3, USC was one of five Pac-10 schools that had been barred from playing in a bowl game following the 1980 season for their roles in an academic scandal. The punishment eliminated any chance that Southern Cal would represent the conference in the Rose Bowl, an honor the men of Troy had enjoyed for 10 of the previous 14 years. However, it did nothing to stop the Trojans' winning ways. Heading into its Week 11 matchup with the Washington Huskies, USC had been ranked for 43 weeks in a row and was perched at number two behind Georgia, the nation's only unbeaten and untied team. Should the Bulldogs slip up and USC keep winning, it was likely that the Trojans would take over the top spot and somewhat shamefully claim the national title. With just two games remaining, Southern Cal had a one-game lead over Washington in the conference standings and were favored to defeat the Huskies by 11 points. Importantly, Washington was one of five teams not involved in the scandal, and a win against either USC or Washington State in the season finale would punch its ticket to Pasadena. Don James, the head coach of the Huskies, told reporters earlier in the week that his team wanted to win the conference crown rather than back into the Rose Bowl. To do that, Washington would have to snap USC's school-record 28-game unbeaten streak and do it in the Coliseum, where it hadn't won in 16 years. The game began with USC moving the ball at will against the Washington defense, but as would be the script all afternoon, the Trojans shot themselves in the foot to short-circuit otherwise promising drives. Quarterback Gordon Adams was responsible for two turnovers in the first quarter, and when the Huskies took a 3-0 lead, it was the first time that Southern Cal had trailed in a ball game all season. The second quarter went from bad to worse, with Adams tossing another interception before being sacked and knocked out of the game with a knee injury. The score was 3-3 at halftime, and USC coach John Robinson remembers what he told his team to try and turn things around. Halftime uh, uh, for us, we tried the best we could. I, and, you know, when, when a game goes poorly, 
and you're unable to change it, you, you really, I think that's one of the jobs of a coach at halftime to say, hey, things are going badly. We've got to find a way to change. We couldn't get it done. Uh, we talked at halftime about relaxing. We said, hey, boy, we couldn't be any worse than we were in the first half. Well, uh, we were in the second half, but we tried our best to try to relax and say, hey, let's just, let's just have confidence in ourselves and, and believe in what we're doing. And yet, uh, in the second half, things really didn't change much. In fact, they got, they got worse, if anything. Washington took the lead with a 73-yard punt return touchdown and added another score after the Trojans threw their third interception of the day. The final score was Washington 20, USC 10. Southern Cal finished the game with a staggering eight turnovers and tasted defeat for the first time in more than two years, despite outgaining its opponent by almost 200 yards. The Husky players carried their coach off the field on their shoulders, feeling vindicated that they had rendered all talk of a supposed tainted Rose Bowl premature. Washington would finish its season the following week with a victory in the Apple Cup against rival Washington State and await the winner of the Michigan-Ohio State game. For USC, the Trojans were no longer title contenders, but they still could have a say in which team would ultimately hoist the trophy. Southern Cal would end its season with the annual rivalry game against unbeaten Notre Dame. The Irish could very well enter that contest with their own title hopes, but would first need to hold on to its seven-point lead against Bear Bryant in Alabama. The Alabama and Notre Dame game had drawn more attention from the media than any regular season college football game in memory. Writers from 81 newspapers in 22 states were on hand at Legion Field in Birmingham to observe the matchup. The week before the big game, a newspaper in Tuscaloosa sent a columnist north to visit the home of the Fighting Irish in South Bend. So impressed was the writer by the picturesque campus that he wrote, If I have a child, I'd want him to go here. When he arrived home, his wife confronted him and said bluntly, No child that passes through my womb is going to Notre Dame. The first half of the game did nothing to soften the animosity towards the Fighting Irish that seemed to grow on the pine trees in the Yellowhammer State. The Irish led the Crimson Tide 7-0 as the third quarter began, and the Bear had pulled his injured and struggling senior signal caller in favor of the freshman Walter Lewis. The speedy Alabama native led his team down the field in the first drive of the second half, but a badly missed field goal attempt ended the threat. Notre Dame was content to play conservative, even twice punting on third down, rely on its defense, and avoid any mistakes that might hand momentum over to Alabama. When the Irish did threaten to open up a two-score advantage, the Tide rose up to block a field goal and keep the game within striking distance. With less than four minutes to go in the game, Bama faced a fourth and one at the Notre Dame 37, but was stopped short by a Notre Dame defense that had not yielded a touchdown in 20 straight quarters. The end finally came with less than a minute to go, when Lewis, his jersey completely torn in half from the ravaging he withstood all game from the snarling Irish defense, fumbled the ball back to Notre Dame near midfield. The final score was 7-0, just the second time a Bear Bryant Alabama team had been shut out at home. The Irish players ran off the turf at Legion Field with their undefeated season still intact. Awaiting them in the locker room were representatives from the Sugar Bowl, as well as Notre Dame Athletic Director Moose Krause. He was wearing one of the Bears' trademark houndstooth hats that was given to him by the Alabama coach at a dinner in New York City years before. He'd worn the hat all four times his team had played against Bryant, and told reporters, this hat is undefeated. The Irish still had two games left on their regular season schedule, but could now accept the bid to play in New Orleans against Georgia, the nation's only other unbeaten team. 
twice beaten Alabama, would accept an offer to appear in the Cotton Bowl against Baylor, the champions of the Southwest Conference. If the game in Birmingham was for old-school defensive purists, the contest in the rain in Columbia was a preview of the future of college football. South Carolina and Wake Forest enter the second half of their game knotted at 14, but points would not be at a premium on this day. In just the first four minutes of the third quarter, each team added another touchdown, and the score stood tied at 21. After an exchange of field goals, the game was once again tied as the fourth quarter began. Wake Forest quarterback Jay Venuto had told himself before the game that this would be his finest performance, and as the game evolved into a shootout, he remembers feeling like the conditions were perfect for his prediction to come true. It makes it more fun because it takes the pressure off you, meaning you have to score because they're going to score. And they're probably saying the same thing about us. You know, George, offense, we have to score because Wake's going to score. And that's what makes the games fun. It's when it's a dogfight, you know, like the Maryland game, 11 to 10. You make one mistake and you know you might lose the game because you're not moving the ball well, you're not scoring, neither team's scoring. So you have a tendency to play a little more conservative. I think both teams play lights out knowing that, well, we have to because the other side's going to score. So we can't you know, be lethargic. We can't just run the ball for two or three yards. You have to open up your offense. And that's why I say, that personally, it was the most fun I've ever had playing football. The Gamecocks surged ahead 31-24 on a Gary Harper touchdown pass. But the Deacons answered quickly to force the fourth tie of the game on a 43-yard Venuto touchdown connection. Following a quick three and out from Carolina, Venuto tossed his fourth touchdown of the day to put the visitors ahead 38-31. Venuto's dream day was turning into a nightmare for the Gamecock fans. South Carolina entered the game just one victory shy of the school record for wins in a year and had Gator Bowl representatives on hand hoping to extend an invite. Heisman Trophy frontrunner George Rogers was having his usual impressive day, eclipsing his own school record for yards in the season but a loss to unranked Wake Forest would surely mar what was scheduled to be his crowning day. Trailing by seven with three and a half minutes to play, South Carolina needed an answer. Instead, Gary Harper's pass was intercepted by Pierre Brown and returned to the Gamecock 23-yard line. Carolina's emotional senior quarterback, who admitted to crying in the locker room before the game, was greeted by jeers from the home fans as he trudged back to the bench. Across the field, the visiting team quarterback was ready to put the finishing touches on the upset when his head coach asked him a question he's never forgotten. I have gone over this probably a thousand times since that day. We tried on the field, and before we tried on the field, McAvick says to me, he says, do you want to throw one more touchdown pass? Because I'm a coach's son. And I know sometimes he gets hung up with the moment, and being a coach's son, I'm thinking, what's – what would a coach do in, in this situation? I said, no. I said, we're in field goal range. Let's run the clock. And if we get a first down, the game's over. But if we throw on a rainy day and something bad happens, then they're right back in the game. And that, that's me as a quarterback coach, not playing timid, but thinking like a coach because my dad was a coach. And in retrospect, I sort of listened to John. He's the coach. and tried to throw right away on first down, the fifth touchdown pass, and put the game out. But I convinced John, I don't know if I convinced him, I just gave my thoughts, that 
you know, give a chance to kick the field goal to, you know, to steal the game. And um, so I wouldn't say, Joe, that haunts me, but I don't know if, if I should have said that and just listen to what he said and like I did for another thousand plays that he's called and just do what he told me to do. <laughs> Three straight runs gained eight yards, but Phil Denfeld's 32-yard potential game-winning field goal attempt sailed wide to the left, and suddenly the Gamecocks had life again. Harper, trailing by seven and eager for redemption, began the desperation drive with an 18-yard completion. Then, with just a minute left, came the play that would bring Harper back in the good graces of Carolina fans. You didn't see the film on it. Harper throws a long bomb. It bounces off Pierre Brown's head, and they catch it on a dead run and score. It either bounced off his head or his top of his shoulder pad, but it bounced off of him straight up in the air, and the receiver caught it on a dead run. It was like, wow. You know, sometimes stuff like that happens. You know, I wouldn't say you're not supposed to win the game, but daggone, that's, that's tough to swallow. Now trailing by just one. The Gamecocks left their offense on the field to attempt a two-point conversion. Opting to put the ball in the hands of Harper rather than give it to Rodgers, coaches called a pass play borrowed from Michigan when the Wolverines ran it for a touchdown against Carolina back in September. It worked once again, and the Gamecocks took the lead 39-38. Venuto would have one more chance, but despite setting school records for attempts, completions, yards, and touchdowns in the game, he was unable to muster any last-minute magic. The Demon Deacons would finish the season at 5-6 and six and see their third-year head coach, John Makovic, leave Winston-Salem to become an assistant with the Dallas Cowboys. In the locker room after the game, South Carolina accepted an invitation to the Gator Bowl for a date with Pittsburgh, who had demolished Army 45-7 earlier in the day. Elsewhere around the country, the bowl picture was nearly complete. Top-ranked and undefeated Georgia Bulldogs' road victory over Auburn was made all the more sweet in that it clinched a berth in the Sugar Bowl against Notre Dame. Georgia had hung a sign in its locker room that said, Payback, two years, no sugar, alluding to how Auburn had beaten the Dogs the last two years in a row to cost them a trip to New Orleans. The Tangerine Bowl would pair Maryland and Florida, while Texas and North Carolina would battle in the Blue Bonnet Bowl. After rumors spread that Florida State might be shut out of a major bowl, the Knolls accepted a return trip to the Orange Bowl against the Big 8 champion that would emerge from the Nebraska-Oklahoma game in Lincoln the following week. Any talk of bowl matchups and national title implications would be premature. Nothing could be taken for granted until the climax of the greatest third act in sports took center stage. Rivalry week was underway. Next week on the Hidden Yardage Podcast... South Carolina seeks a record-breaking victory against rival Clemson in Death Valley, while Oklahoma's Barry Switzer engages in some mind games before his streaking Sooners try to spoil Nebraska's national title hopes. And in Columbus, Arch Sleester and the Buckeyes host the hated Michigan Wolverines with the Rose Bowl and a conference title on the line. The Hidden Yardage podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode and special acknowledgments, visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find a full transcript of every show, as well as schedules, stats, and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. 
Thank you for listening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.